Hi, and welcome to Cause Pods. I'm your host, Matthew Passy. Here at Cause Pods, we have one simple mission to highlight the amazing folks who are using podcasts as a way to raise awareness for good causes. Whether it's a nonprofit they work with, a charity they support, a social justice campaign they're championing, a medical condition they're battling, or someone who's just looking to make a positive impact on their local community, state, country, or the world. These are podcasters with a positive mission. Along with raising awareness for our guests' favorite cause, we're also going to see if we can raise some money to support their efforts. So make sure you check out the show notes for each episode at causepods.org to learn more about what they're doing and how to help them achieve their goals. Very excited for this episode of Cause Pods. I am chatting with Terry Yuen. She is host and creator of Engendered. This is a weekly podcast for women, survivors, practitioners, and allies teaching feminism and decolonizing hearts and minds one story at a time. Terry, thank you so much for joining us here on Cause Pods today. Thanks for inviting me, Matthew. And I'm glad we finally got connected. I, I think we've been trying to do this for a few weeks now, but I'm glad that we are here and we are getting going. So let's start from the beginning. Where did Engendered come from? Not just the podcast, but all the work that you do in the space. Sure. So I am a survivor of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and I have been engaged in advocacy in the New York City community for over a decade. I'm part of an organization, a collective basically of nonprofits working in this space called the New York City Gender Justice Task Force. And they are basically nonprofits that are working to serve survivors who are survivors of intimate partner violence, gender-based violence, and or sexual assault. And so having worked in that space for the past decade, I had the opportunity to be nominated and be a part of the New York City Domestic Violence Task Force, which is a task force that is co-chaired by the First Lady of New York, Shirley McRae, and it is part of the formerly Office to Combat Domestic Violence and now renamed Mayor's Office to Combat Domestic and Gender-Based Violence. Sorry, Mayor's Office to End Domestic and Gender-Based Violence. And so I started being a member of that task force I believe in January of 2018, I'm one of two survivors in the task force. I believe there may be 11 nonprofit members, and then the rest of the membership is comprised of city agencies that interact with survivors. And it was really not far into being a part of that group of people that I felt that there was a need for me to really fill what I saw was a gap in the system of understanding what the definition of domestic violence was, what our goals were, uh, what our collective vision was. And I've been in this space for so long, and I've been connected to so many advocates, attorneys, mental health professionals, that I felt that I had a sense, a vision, and a holistic solution that really we've tried and been successful at that I wanted to reintroduce to the community. And so this was something that I at first thought was just going to be towards the people who were working in the New York City community. And very soon after, I realized that there was a much bigger need to have survivors and survivor voices involved in the conversation. 
So this is incredible work that you're doing, and I'm sorry that you had to go through it, but I'm glad that you're here on the other side, faster, stronger, and, and helping other people. What are some of the common misconceptions that people have about domestic violence and how it impacts people? And what do you think are the, the big battles that you're taking on that most people don't really think about in this space? Well, first, I think the biggest misconception is how they define violence. And there's a common misconception that violence is only physical. But in fact, if you look at the myriad of ways in which violence can be enacted on someone through the definition of power and control, it can be emotional, psychological, financial, sexual. DV by proxy is where you use other institutions or people to exert control over the victim. And coercive control, which is one my first interview actually, is a set of behaviors that really is gendered. So I think the biggest misconception is that violence is equal and that it's not gendered. And there's a lack of willingness to kind of point out that it's based and rooted in patriarchal domination and male supremacy, and that all the different forms and variations that come out of that can be pointed to those structures that we very often are reluctant to acknowledge exist and as a result confront. How do you combat that? Like, how do you get people to, I mean, we're talking about, I think, changing centuries of thinking and culture and not that it was right that it should have been this way, but I mean, it's fairly well ingrained in society in a lot of different places. How do we make such you know massive tectonic changes in this space? Well, I think the first step is this sort of goes back to the goal of my podcast is building awareness that there is power and privilege in all aspects of our lives, you know, whether it's in our home in our workplace, uh, in the political realm, and that power in and of itself and privilege in and of itself may not be something that someone sought out. And obviously it's endowed, you know, based on your gender and class and race in this society. And if we can make the invisible visible, then it creates an opportunity for us to use our privilege and power in responsible and socially minded ways that are inclusive of other voices. And so, you know, my goal for the podcast is really to build a cultural literacy around power and privilege and oppression so that we can see more and make connections between all of these different spaces and really flex that muscle so that when things show up, you might be you know, very, very outspoken in the workplace if your colleague is being mistreated and there's some sort of discriminatory behavior that's leading to an unwelcoming workplace. But somehow if that shows up in your church or in your family, if your child discloses to you that he or she was touched inappropriately by an adult that you're close to and you trust, you may respond differently. And really how we, if we accept that these 
power and, and privilege distribution differences exist and people can abuse their power, then we're more likely to respond in a way that is helpful rather than hurtful and re-victimizing. Where are you finding the most success in getting the narrative to change in all the different places that you're working with and talking to and, and organizing with? So my podcast is divided into three different formats. There's the survivor story where I talk with the survivor directly. There's the interview format with you know any variety of practitioners, frontline people, lawyers, mental health professionals, policymakers, et cetera. And then I have a co-host he and I basically review a certain set of episodes and we reflect upon them. And there's another opportunity for us to speak to our listeners, hopefully people who are coming in and and not really knowing and feeling overwhelmed. And I feel that it's really hard to say there's no pattern in terms of which of those formats is the most effective. I think survivor stories can be effective, but if the narrative is perceived as being very narrow. For example, I had a story of a transgender college student. And then I had another story with someone who left his fundamentalist Christian home and is now an atheist. So the two guests and their backgrounds are so narrow that I felt that the people who are coming to those stories had some sort of intersection and alignment with those experiences. And obviously the goal is that you want people to listen to all the stories so that you could see the connection, not just people coming to listen because they happen to share some commonality. And so I feel like that's a big challenge for me is really getting people to, to go beyond what their particular life experience is which is something that I've come to learn about in terms of advocacy is meeting them where they're at and shifting them sort of one step at a time, moving from awareness to dialogue, to activation, to engagement. Did Engendered start with the podcast or was that added later on as part of your efforts? So you're talking about the Engendered Collective, the nonprofit? Yeah. So that's actually something that I'm in the process of building. It came out after the podcast in response to both what I was hearing from my podcast community, as well as what was happening in New York City specifically. So just to give you sort of a brief background, there's been, I would say for the past several decades, well, more than that, a slow conflation of people who are working in the space to end mass incarceration and people who are working in the space to end gender-based violence. And what's happening in New York City in particular is that the desire to reduce the flow of black and brown men into the prison population has led to piloting of programs in the restorative justice space that actually, in my opinion and the opinions of people who have been long working in the battered women's movement, that are actually increasing the danger and harm to survivors and to children. And what's happening is that those who are working in the space of ending gender-based violence, though well-meaning, they're citing the 
quote-unquote needs of the survivor to quote-unquote fix the abuser. And so these are piloting programs potentially that involve family therapy, that involve not helping the survivor leave, but quote-unquote honoring the survivor's desire to stay. And so from a public health perspective, I see this as a dangerous trend. And I have a large network of international survivors and advocates that I reached out to. So I'm in the process of building this organization, the Engendered Collective, that is basically an organization to teach feminism to survivors, which I think is a huge gap in the services that survivors are getting now in the psychosocial education that they're getting to help them understand the different structures and systems that enable the violence that they're experiencing, physical or otherwise, and give them access to the decades of research that we know having a survivor stay and having her children potentially be exposed to an abuser, how harmful that is in terms of future risk of chronic disease and adult health increase in risk and harm to that. And so I think that this is a big part of the conversation that's missing, and that's what led to the formation of the Engendered Collective. And so when you were first starting with the podcast itself, why this medium? Like, what made you think that this is going to be an effective way to spread your messaging, tell your stories, get the word out there? Well, it's there are low barriers to entry, for one. <laughs> that's, that's <true>. uh, <laughs> it's accessible to everyone, in theory. So it's more accessible in some ways than the written book. If you give someone a book to read, they might be overwhelmed with it. But the podcast medium, I think it's a more intimate medium. And if you're having an interview, um, it feels like you're right there. And you're able to sort of tune in when you want and be a part of a conversation that you may not be comfortable having in a public space where your book is out there, right? If you're on the subway or on the bus and everybody can see the title of your book. And if you're exploring concepts, for example, around what intimate partner violence is and how that shows up in relationships, or if you want to just listen to a survivor story, a survivor of, let's say, childhood sexual abuse, that is safer in a way if you're consuming it via audio than if you're doing it out in the public in a book setting. And so those are really the, the two options. You could have something, and it's also available through the web. So people who might not feel like porting it around through their smartphone can also access it in that way. That's so interesting, the privacy aspect, that books, obviously, if you're at home, they're private. But if you're in a home setting that you're unsure about what is going on with your partner and you are trying to look at new resources and information and, and ideas to help you get out of a situation like this. I never thought about having books and other paper and brochures and things like that could sort of give away what you're doing and, and potentially lead to some more problems. But yeah, nobody can really tell what you're listening to with headphones on. And maybe you have someone who will check your browsing history. You're right. People probably don't think to look at your podcasting history and see what you've been listening to. So that's so interesting about the privacy aspect of it. Yeah. And it doesn't have to necessarily, I wasn't necessarily alluding to the, the potential danger, but more just if I were to listen to something and I've done this in the past with books, I've read a book and it's been so 
it resonated so much emotionally that I would start crying. And it feels better if I'm crying and with my headphones on <laughs> than it does, <laughs> you know, if I have this book and people are like, what's going on? What was in that book? And then they start to want to be intrusive and look at the cover. What's the name of the book that elicited that reaction? What have been some of the biggest hurdles that you've had in producing the podcast, whether it's on your side, dealing with guests, you know, what are some things that you had to overcome early on that somebody else who's thinking about doing a podcast can maybe avoid or, you know, maybe you can help them avoid? I think for me, my challenges are less in the production side and more in the growth and marketing side, because I feel that everybody has an opportunity to benefit from the content that I'm sharing. And what I'm really doing is aggregating all the best practices and voices and creating a blueprint for how we can, on every level of society, prevent and confront violence. And so even if you are someone who is an advocate who's been working in the space for 20, 30 years and you think, oh, I know it all, right? You don't in the sense that you've not heard every single survivor story. You've not heard how certain laws and policies may play out in different states that don't impact you necessarily now, but may later because of political trends or cultural trends. And so having access to the different ways in which something can manifest is really important for us to be able to not normalize what we think is how this phenomenon shows up. Because for a lot of people who grow up, let's say, with physical violence in their childhood, I've heard talking to survivors that it's almost made them immune to recognizing emotional and psychological manipulation as an adult, if that showed up in their romantic relationships, because they only knew violence to be in this certain way. And I think the point is, it's not about violence, it's about power and control. And how do people exert power and control in a way that infringes upon your liberties and your personal freedoms and your ability to make decisions you know, for yourself and live your best life? And that's really what Evan Stark in his book, Coercive Control, how he frames domestic violence is that it's a liberty crime. And so, so much of what happens in other spaces is also about infringing on our civil liberties. And if we can, you know, recognize that obviously there's an infinite number of ways in which it can show up, then and we'll be more open to recognizing that, you know, there's, there's something beneficial to learning about it because, Again, it's about building this muscle and preparing so that you can be a better upstander, which is the sort of opposite of being a bystander, you know, someone who takes action and is civically minded and responds to situations of social need in a, in a way that is helpful. So for those folks who are listening, one, we're going to obviously, as always, we're going to share a link to your work. We're going to share a link to the podcast. We're going to create a donation page to your 501c3 here so we can see if we can help raise some funds so we can help you on your in your mission. But somebody listening who thinks they're an upstander, which I love that term, what can they do to help the podcast? What can they do now to help grow, to get the word out there, to push this out into the universe? 
the first thing they can do is of course, subscribe, <laughs> but not just to the podcast, but also to all of our other social media accounts, following us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, because there's different content that shows up in each of those three platforms. And I try to very carefully curate it so that there's a whole range of positive and negative and in-between kind of content that is connecting what we're producing in our shows to what's happening in the news. So something may show up in the news and I'll reference that such and such guest talked about this or something will show up in the news and I'll say this, a future guest will talk about it, but then I'll also draw connections between this story and that story together represents this concept or examples of this concept. And so if you're just listening to the podcast, you might miss out on those other quote unquote conversations. And I think it's important, of course, to build a community where you can share and talk about these concepts. And so part of the goal of the Engendered Collective is we're trying to build communities of survivors across the country and eventually internationally where survivors can use their personal experiences as a starting point for both learning about feminism, teaching feminism, and building literacy in their community to create upstanders. And, you know, I think one of the biggest impediments to leaving is the social pressure that people have around relationships and potentially the kind of person that you may be involved with. The wealthier they are, the more privileged they have, in some cases, the less likely the survivor herself or himself may want to leave or the less likely your family may be supportive. And it's very common for people to say and hear, oh, that person is a, whatever, lawyer, investment banker. Have you thought about how you're going to live if you were to leave? And yeah, um, housing insecurity and economic insecurity is definitely something that is a big impediment to leaving, but that's why we need to make those interventions part of the uh, solutions that we offer to survivors. You have big challenges ahead of you, and I think what you are doing is extremely noble, extremely necessary, but uh, the challenges are huge, and, and of course, we'll do whatever we can to support you, and hopefully the audience will do the same. Terry Yuen, Engendered Podcast, Best way to find out more, engendered.us. And of course, in the show notes, we'll have a link to the site, to the show, to a donation page, and to uh, all the social media related. Just want to thank you so much for coming on CausePods today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of CausePods. Again, if you've been inspired by the work of our guests, please check out the show notes in your podcast app or at causepods.org. There you will find links to their work and a special donation link to support their favorite efforts. From there, you can also follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. And remember, if you have a cause pod and want to join me for an interview, please check out causepods.org and fill out the interview request form. If approved, we'll schedule you for a chat and share the amazing work you're doing with the CausePod audience. Thanks again, and see you next time on CausePods. Pods.